The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast episode three. Episode trois. Trois? Is that French? That is French for three. Jeez, I studied Spanish. So did I. <laughs> oh, but you need some French. That's good. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm Ilya Friedman. Hey, and I'm Ben Rock. Woohoo! Episode three. Three. Very excited. I knew we'd make it this far. I, I knew we'd make it this far because before we published any of them, we'd already recorded like six of them. That's right. So uh, there's still a couple more uh, yet to do before we start another wave of recording episodes. Very exciting. So, uh, so Ilya, you just came back from South by Southwest. I did. South by Southwest is uh, a film festival I definitely feel on the rise. Uh, there's now... On the rise? On the rise. It is very much on the rise. I feel like it has arrived at the, at the upper plateau of film festival dumb. It's, it is, but it's not necessarily a film market, although there have been movies that have been acquired there in the past, and there was a movie that was acquired there this time, and actually one of our clients. It was a movie called Exist, which was made by some friends of yours. Several and, friends of mine, yeah. Yeah, several friends of yours. and um, From back in the past. That's right. From my dark Blair Witch days. And they made a midnight movie, a midnight movie section. Uh, well, I guess they have a section of movies called midnight movies there, which are all generally horror and genre pictures, and uh, Exist's was your friend's movie and our, our clients at Hot Rod let's, Cameras. Let's name them. It's Eduardo Sanchez, who was the co-director of Blair Witch, and it was produced by Robin Cowie and Greg Hale, who were both producers on Blair Witch. That's right. And of course, the cinematographer was John Rutland, who uh, has done some terrific work with uh, Ed before. He shot Lovely Molly and now exists. All of us are doing the University of Central Florida proud. That's right. You guys are you're all alumni. Indeed. Exists was uh, was also a uh, a big hit with audience members. Uh, it won the audience award for the midnight section, which was very cool. I understand that every showing was sold out, which is you know not atypical for a film festival. But still, I went to several movies that had plenty of seats, and I understand there wasn't an empty seat in any of the screenings for Exist, and you had to get there really early if you wanted to see it. But you also had some other clients at the midnight uh, section, right? We did. We had a uh, client with a movie there called Home, which uh, I almost don't even know how to uh, describe, but uh, it definitely has a few real good jumps and creepy moments in it. And uh, the cinematographer of that project is a long-term client of ours. In fact, he bought what was probably the very first 70 PL we ever converted, oh, nice. uh, Bridger Nielsen. And he's a, a really, really talented young guy who has uh, shot a bunch of things and he has a production company called gravity giant productions and what's a gravity giant gravity giant i believe that is a uh, giant planet isn't it like a giant gas planet a gravity giant isn't yeah. it well I, I could be wrong i don't know maybe that maybe that's a red giant and i'm it has a lot of gravity and i'm applying all kinds of mixed metaphors here when, when we get to work on our astronomy podcast we'll get right on that <laughs> uh, he was at sundance actually with a short um that that movie home was based on uh, a couple years prior and now they were at south by with the feature version of it so oh great yeah and didn't you have some other clients who had stuff at south by i did we had uh, also a, a client named uh, adam bricker he's a very talented uh, cinematographer he shot this horror film called starry eyes which tells the story of a, uh, a young ingenue coming to uh, hollywood and uh, working at sort of a uh, dumpy 
French fry potato hooters sort of like knockoff mm-hmm. restaurant and uh, dreams big of starring in schlocky horror films or whatever it is. And there's sort of this bizarre metaphysical horror aspect, lots of real creepy moments and some some really good gore. You would really appreciate some of the, the gore effects that are in, in this movie. Like um, it already. Yes. Uh, it's called Starry Eyes. I'll check it out. So what I'm hearing you say, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be wrong, is that if somebody is one of your clients, it's like a straight line direct connection to getting into the South by Southwest Festival. You know, I I didn't say that, but uh, I'm glad that you made that connection. I'm really I'm really thinking you're probably right. As a matter of fact, there's a huge percentage of our clients are making horror films and going to South by all future customers of Hot Rod Camera should note this, that if you'd like to get into South by pretty much, you just have to buy something from us or, you know, talk to us for 15 minutes. Just get like like some follow focus ring. They're like they're like, you know, 50 bucks, bucks, 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, Just get some of those. Get some cam tags. Boom. Boom. You're you're right. You're right. It's South. I've never been to South by Southwest myself. But I have been to another film festival in Austin called Fantastic Fest, mm. and it is, I would say, bar none, my favorite film festival I've ever attended as a filmmaker. It was so much fun. Tim League, who runs it, who I think is also involved in South by Southwest and is also the owner of the Alamo Draft House, mm-hmm. like that guy is just like consummate showman. And uh, I've, I've never, as a filmmaker, had a better experience at a film festival than I did at Fantastic Fest. I got to go to the Alamo Ritz a couple of times, and it is a really cool experience. Uh, the projection is excellent. I actually got to see... A restoration of the 1954 original Godzilla movie, which oh, was sweet. spectacular, as sort of a fun little um, bonus. Gareth Edwards was there, and he showed up with a completely temp everything little preview screening of the new Godzilla movie. Nice. And let me tell you, uh, it brought down the house. It was it was really amazing. And he talked about uh, a little bit about Monsters, which of course was a big hit. Which Love was a, Monsters. Started off at, at South by Monsters and, is the movie that made me go. Shit, I have to learn visual effects now because like (laughs) because look at what this guy did with no money and a very, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of how to use all these visual effects programs and how he told a great story in a way that you don't think of as a as a giant visual effects kind of story. Speaking of film festivals, let's talk about today's guest, Fraser Bradshaw. Yes, let's talk about Fraser. Fraser has a history with the Sundance Festival, doesn't he? Uh, correct. Yeah, he has directed NDP two projects, a short and a feature. Uh, the short was called Every Day Here, and I want to say that was at Sundance in 2000. I actually saw it at Sundance. And then uh, he had a feature in, I want to say, 2008 called Everything Strange and New, which I also saw at Sundance. I just happened to be at both of those festivals, not not stalking Fraser. He has a really unique cinematic voice as a director as a DP, I feel like he has uh, his his footage has a real distinctive, interesting, haunting visual quality. And I can also tell you from personal experience, because he's shot a few things that I've directed, that he is just an absolute pleasure to work with. Not a screamer, never raises his voice except to be heard from a distance and uh, just a real a real fun guy to have around on set. Great sense of humor and a lot of fun. Not afraid of technology either. I remember way back when, uh, well, I, I've met. I met Fraser years prior, but uh, I remember when Conversations, your your movie from mm. a, few, a few years ago, came up. Fraser was like one of the first people ever to sign on to shoot 24p, uh, 24p with the AJ SDX 900, which was the first broadcast style standard definition two third inch chip 
camera out, out there, but uh, he totally embraced it and wanted to use the uh, the PS Technic Pro 35 adapter. And this was all like, you know, really fairly new stuff at that time. And uh, uh, he dove headfirst right in and got a really, really beautiful look for that project. Yeah, no, I agree. Really, really beautiful look. And again, just uh, really efficient, knows how to get the job done. Uh, you know, just a, a brilliant problem solver on his feet. Definitely has dug me out of several holes when I've when I've worked with him in the past. You know, what can I say? I just really admire the guy's work and I admire his mind. Um, you know, when in, in the interview, we'll talk about some of his influences and things that you don't usually talk about when you're talking about cinematography. Esoteric, interesting places. He talks about things like structuralism, which I, you know, was over my head when we were talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, made me go home and look it up and, and research it. And, you know, he also talks about just like the things that compel us to be filmmakers what it is he loves about art. He also, uh, you know, bags on LA a little bit, which is my hometown, but <laughs> well, he, he, my adopted hometown. He's also a really bright guy. And, you know, you can tell that he's, uh, he's a really passionate guy who, um, he does whatever is required, whether, um, it's directing the story, whether it's uh, producing the story, whether it's shooting the story or all of the above. Yeah. And I think that it's, uh, he, he was a really great get for the show. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to have him on, and I think uh, I think more people should know about Fraser Bradshaw. So, without further ado, here he is, Fraser Bradshaw. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here with my good friend Fraser Bradshaw, DP and director, based in San Francisco. Thank you so much for coming out. It is really my pleasure. I actually kind of want to start with something that I've brought up to a few people, and I don't know that I've named you by name, but. You said something to me once, or maybe I just inferred something from what you said, that I, I kind of have got stuck in my head about cinematographers and how they approach the work. And that is that I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you can tell me a more nuanced version of it, but that some some DPs kind of approach the work primarily from a camera and compositional point of view, and some guys approach it primarily from a lighting point of view. And, and, and I'm not saying that you don't care about the lighting or that the lighting isn't very important to you, but I feel like the lighting often serves your composition more than your composition is capturing the scene that you've lit. Hmm. I would imagine I probably said that to you long ago and I don't know that it rings any bells. Basically you, you walk into a situation and you look at it and you understand the problems you need to solve as you look at it. And sometimes the problems are going to be around lighting and sometimes they're going to be around composition and sometimes they're going to be around any number of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you understand the, the crux of your problem, then you can start building solutions starting with the most important and complex of the solutions. Certainly if I was shooting a dialogue scene and a feature, lighting is going to be the most important part of that mm-hmm. because you're looking at people's heads talking to each other you don't you know it's not like well i'm gonna in- reinvent the wheel on the talking head shot with a brand new exciting composition <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna start with the lighting and then i'm going to try to build the composition and all that the, the other choices really all choices on a, on a feature are gonna come from the script and the director um, and, and the intention for the scene, but um, in terms of logistical problems, I think you uh, you look at the set, you look at the the available light, and you you start solving the big problems first, and then they get more and more finite and more and more subtle um, until you have an image that's ready to be shot. 
I might retire this question because I've asked everybody this and I've gotten some varying different uh, questions and one person sort of disagreed with the premise of the question saying that composition is kind of the director's job anyway. But I, when I've worked with you, I remember on more than one occasion while working with you, um, I would describe the shot that I was looking for. You would set it up. I'd come. It was exactly what we had dis- we had discussed, but it looked different and way cooler than what I had imagined when I talked mm-hmm. to you. Like it, it, it fit in an in an interesting, different way. And I, it's it's hard to even describe when I try and explain to people like what I think you bring to a project. It, to me, it's one of the many things I think you bring to a project. Yeah. But it, but it was something that, and I think a good DP will almost always do that. Um, you you have a way that you do it, and I don't know that there's a way to to bottle it. How would you, is there a way that you would describe sort of your aesthetic approach or or even your process when approaching a new project? I'm really interested in visual authorship and giving a film a visual signature um, that is in some way all its own, and it's clearly going to be different with each project, and it's going to come from looking at the script and talking to the director and maybe seeing headshots or shooting tests or um, any number of things. But I'm, I'm very interested in figuring out how the film doesn't look like every other film that the, the look speaks to the film and um, give me an example of a film that you had and like the basic idea of the script and how you came up with a visual signature. I think this is a, a really key thing that a lot of DPs do. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone describe it ex- with, with those exact words. And I think that's a brilliant way to think about it. So uh, I shot a feature doc a few years ago called These Amazing Shadows that is about the National Film Registry and about the power of American cinema um, and its historic importance and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we knew going in that it was going to be interview heavy and that there were going to be a lot of clips from classic American films. Um, and that essentially the clips from great American cinema that were going to comprise, you know, 40% of the film were going to sort of lend it a visual signature, a very bizarre kind of all over the place visual signature, but there, but it was going to be cinematic looking. And so thinking about that, we shot some tests to try to come up with a visual interview style that felt theatrical. And we ended up with very obtuse eye lines and very obtuse key lights so that you're looking primarily at the dark side of someone's face and your backlight and your key light are on the same side and you've got the triangle of light on the cheek closest to the camera. And it looked very much like I might light a subject in a feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very much the intention is how how can we create a look for interviews that has the feel of classic narrative cinema? Hmm. So that was a strategy going into that dock to do something that was totally unorthodox in a dock, but to intentionally mirror the subject matter with the visual presentation of talking head interviews. Interesting. Can you give me an example of when you did something like that in a more narrative sense? The way that we lit these amazing shadows interviews was very much like I might light any dramatic Mm -hmm. um, subject in a a feature, you know, with a a dark shadow side and a three quarter key light that creates a triangular light on the dark cheek and, um, and just enough backlight to make the hair 
glow a little bit without looking too much like a backlight a little bit darker background than you might normally have in a documentary interview well it's something that uh you know obviously a lot of dps have talked about this kind of stuff with us and it's something i'm interested in like when you're looking at the script is there a process by which you come up with the set of rules that you're going to approach like i guess in my mind i always think like you know like the rule would be you know like wider lenses earlier in the film and we're going to get progressively longer or whatever the way that you're going to visually tell the story is it something that comes out of conversations with the director sometimes directors aren't going to really know exactly how to do that and so they go to you and say how would you do it how do you go about finding that signature that you're going to use that's going to be the stamp on the film I think it's really very different for each project, and it certainly comes a lot from talking to the director. Um, you know, clearly, if, you, if the director has a lookbook, then you can start there. Um, you know, in a way, the director doesn't really know and isn't really supposed to know, um, and that's where I come in. The director gives me a big picture sense of what he or she wants, and it's my job to figure out what that big picture means in finite detail and to manifest a physical, not literally physical, but well, literally to, to manifest an image from the obtuse sensibilities that the director wants to capture. And as a DP, I have the experience and the tool set and the knowledge to think if I'm given a specific descriptor to think in terms of size of key, hardness, softness of key, how bright the background is in relationship to the subject, you know, of what kind of diffusion filter might be appropriate, color temperature, are the shadows warmer or cooler? I have a set of, you know, tens of thousands of variables mm -hmm. that I can fine tune to try to capture that nuanced thing that the director is trying to describe. Now, how about when you're directing? Because you direct some of your own work as well. So when it comes to directing and DPing, the question that I, that I always wonder about is how do you bifurcate your mind in that way? When I've shot and directed, I find myself like I, my brain starts wandering to the composition and it's harder for me to walk, watch the actors. Or if I start watching the actors, then I notice like, oh shit, the headroom's all completely wrong. When you're directing and DPing, like, how do you approach making sure that you're getting the look that you want and the performances that you want and everything else that's going on inside the frame the way you want it? Uh, well, don't forget that being a DP and being a camera operator are not the same. Sure. I don't operate my own camera. I am the DP in terms of crafting the look and lighting, and I will usually operate camera on the rehearsal and have my camera operator watch the rehearsal so they can see what it is that I'm thinking, and then I turn it over to them. And then I try not to stare at the monitor. I check it occasionally, but I try not to stare at it because I will finish a take and think, hmm, there wasn't quite as much headroom as I would have liked, and then realize that I have no idea whether the performance was what I liked because as a camera operator, I look at camera operation mm -hmm. um, first and foremost and performance second. So I have to force myself not to look at the monitor so that I can actually watch the performance. So did you have, an, you had a second operator on like every day here and on uh... well, a lot of my early shorts I shot myself and I kind of learned the hard way that it really wasn't a good idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
there's certainly some performance issues in some of my early shorts that I regret. So when did you, when did you start bringing in a second operator for that stuff? It was actually on the last short I made before my feature, Everything Strange and New, I realized when I was mature enough as a director to realize what I wasn't paying attention to, mm-hmm. that I had the shift. Um, and so for the feature, I brought in a camera operator. And I operated a lot of everything strange and new shots that didn't have explicit performances. You know, there's a lot of quiet moments where someone is sitting still or lying in bed or walking down the street. And I shot most of that myself. Um, But anytime when there was dialogue and there was um, nuance to the performance beyond a facial expression, I was careful to not let myself do it. That's cool. And how, how hard was it to like to cut the umbilical cord and let somebody else do the thing that you know how to do best? Well, it's tough because nobody's as good a camera operator as me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when um, when you have a craft or an art or a whatever that you take very seriously and you care deeply about, it's really hard to have someone else do it differently, mm-hmm. even if they're better at it than you. It's very hard to find someone who's going to do it the way that you want it to be done when you know explicitly how you want something to look or feel or sound or whatever to entrust it to somebody else is quite difficult and I am very lucky to have uh, had the worst filmmaking education ever where (laughs) there was there was was no DP you took your camera and you went and made a movie and it never occurred to me to work with a DP and it never occurred to me that you could have that you could make film without shooting it yourself because the essence of filmmaking is to capture light with a camera Mm -hmm. so in experimental film school never occurred to me that someone else might do that for me (laughs) that that's crazy why would I want to trust the essence of my work to someone else so I trained myself in every aspect because I didn't understand that you wouldn't do that. You know, looking back, it's crazy to to try to learn to do all that stuff. I mean, I'm not the world's best director. I don't direct that much. I'm a much better DP than I am a director because it's something I do all the time. Let's go back and talk a little bit about your film school education. And also, when, when you say that, somebody in the identical situation as you might have been equally drawn to directing as, as DPing. What was it that drew you mostly to the camera back when you were in school? Well, I, I didn't get interested in filmmaking because I was interested in telling stories or because I saw Star Wars when I was a kid and I knew I had to make movies. I... Just you know, what most people say. How do you get interested in film? I saw Star Wars. Um, it was Clash that, of the Titans for me. Right, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Might yeah. as well have been Star Wars. No, I, I saw those <laughs> films and I loved them, but it never occurred to me, I want to make movies. But I went to a fine arts high school. I'm trained in traditional painting, sculpture, photography. And I got a job in college working as a projectionist. And I loved what projected light looked like. And that's what I was interested in. I was interested in the quality of projected light and I was interested in how 24 frames a second looked and felt. And I made films about texture and I was interested in the quality of the visual 
cinematic experience. Now I've seen your films, but how, what would you, how would you describe a film about texture to somebody who's, who, you know, saw star Wars and wanted to go make a movie like how, what, what is a, what is a film about texture and, and why does that resonate with you? Well, it's a, it's still true, very true of my work, but in a very different way now that I'm making narrative work um, is I'm interested in the visceral cinematic experience. And I've learned how to transfer that visceral cinematic experience onto a narrative. But initially I was more interested, you know, just the, the quality of light and the way that things moved at 24 frames a second and strobing and, and the sort of gut feeling that I could achieve by using it in a sort of um, structuralist way. My early cinematic work was structuralist, even though I didn't think about it that, t- that way at the time. Again, and again, for somebody who doesn't know what structuralism, how would you define that? It was very concerned with the qualities of the medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still very concerned with the qualities of the medium, but I've learned how to make them work through narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how how s- cinematic tools, how panning and how tilting and zooming and, you know, the things that the camera can do um, can interplay with the narrative and create a sort of bigger experience than you could have simply through storytelling. Can, can you lay out an example of structuralism in a specific scene that you've shot or how it worked? Um, I feel like it's a little bit over my head. Yeah. So Okay. In my feature, Everything Strange and New, there's a scene toward the end where a character dies and two of the other characters have a telephone conversation. And while you're hearing their telephone conversation, you're watching a very, very slow, very long zoom that starts as a shot of a kitchen and ends up as a shot of leaves on a tree out the window. And the two things are wholly unrelated to each other. There's also a dissolve built into the color grade where you go from a very drab, brownish hue at the beginning of the shot when it's wide of the kitchen to a very, very saturated, rich leaves out the window. And the way that that dissolve and that zoom plays against a conversation about someone dying makes that conversation so much more visceral and so much more important cinematically. Mm -hmm. It's not just a story. It relies on the capacities of the camera and the technology and the visual to make the story work in a way that it could never work otherwise. Interesting. And when you're planning, I mean, like, is that even something that was in your script? Is that something that you were planning when you were shooting it? Is that something that came up on the day when, when you're, when you're thinking about it ahead of time, when you're pre-producing it, have you, do you have these ideas already? I generally have the, the ideas already. I think in visual terms when I, especially writing that script, I started by thinking of visual moments and I essentially had a very loose subject matter framework and I would come up with visual ideas and figure out how to use them to support the narrative I was writing. But I actually didn't even really know what the narrative was. I just knew what the subject matter was. And I was kind of discovering the narrative through visual moments. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, when you're working, when you're DPing for somebody else, do you get into the into a discussion about structuralism? I, I imagine that sometimes some people are open to that and some people aren't. But I also imagine it's also hardwired into your work, no matter who you're working with. How do you infuse that into somebody else's project? Oh, well, it depends on the person. It depends on the script. I mean, 
what it really comes down to in my experience is the script will tell you how to shoot it if you pay attention to the script. So it very much depends on how the script is written. You can force a script to do something that it was not written to do. But for the most part, I find that scripts tend to do best what they were written to be. Mm -hmm. For instance, I just finished the feature and the particular feature had a tremendous amount of people talking to each other. Now you can come up with dolly shots to track in on people who are sitting at a table talking to each other, but that does not make it more cinematic. You actually need to have the script built in a way that the characters move and there is a cinematic dynamic that the camera and the camera strategy can be built around. If you have people who are simply talking to each other in sitting positions, then there's really only so much you can do. And in this particular film, you know, the director at one point said, I feel like we should be doing more dolly shots. And I said to her, I would love to do more dolly shots, but you've got to block the action so that there is a dolly move in the film. If people are just sitting there talking to each other, I can throw a random dolly shot in, but I can't, I can't make it cinematic. You need to have your characters move around. I shot a corporate video quite recently, which was actually, it was the most cinematic corporate video I've ever known to exist. <laughs> um, and it was a, it was a training video um, for the Veterans Administration to help the staff learn to deal with people with PTSD. And the director was very visual. Um, and you don't think of corporate directors as being visual, but this particular guy was fantastic. It was people, one person, a clerk sitting on one side of a counter and people coming up to talk to the clerk. Like, sounds terrible. But the way that we blocked it, um, and we shot it all handheld, so we start, you know, in, in one particular shot, we start with the clerk behind the counter and we step back as a character steps in and there's some dialogue and the character picks up some pamphlets and as he steps away from the counter, I follow him to catch another actor who steps into the counter and I jump the 180 degree line by um, swinging over her other shoulder as she arrives at the counter um, and they run some dialogue and then I back up and another character comes in between me and the second character who stepped up and then I come over to a close up on him and then he steps out and we follow him out to go back to the second character and then she steps away from the character and as she walks away we follow her and then cross behind some chairs and she sits down and the, I kneel down and we have looking over another set of chairs at her. It was like all one long take? It was all one long take. It was like a three and a half minute take. Was there other coverage or was that Yeah, it? there was other coverage and it, it needed to be other coverage because there was so much going on. But the fact that you could come up with a way to make something as banal as three people stepping up to a counter to talk to a clerk into a complicated cinematic moment. It's basically what I love. In this particular example... Um, we were able to take something very banal and turn it into something rich and cinematic. And there's always an opportunity to do that, but you usually need collaboration from the director. You need the director to give you something to play off of. And it, 
you know, from a lighting perspective, um, you know, you can't do beautiful, sexy, moody lighting if the dialogue isn't supporting it. I mean, <laughs> you, you can, sure. People do it all the time, watch TV, yeah. but it does not make for good cinema. And how would you, how would you define cinema? You were talking to me earlier um, today about um, the, the differences you see uh, storytelling in like an indie cinema kind of a framework and how you see it in kind of more of a mainstream about mm-hmm. it. Well, y- you explain it because you're way better. So I, I, I usually describe um, there being two, um, two ends of the spectrum. One is the studio film. Um, in a studio film, you're watching other people have experiences. Uh, in an indie film, or probably more appropriately, an art film, you are sharing the experience with the characters. There are certainly many places on the trajectory between those two. Sure, and I'm sure you can come up with yeah. examples of both that do the opposite. Right. But you're, you know, but as a as a filmmaker, I'm particularly interested in the latter. I want the audience to have a deep, empathetic experience with the characters, and I want to create a visual signature that supports that and use some of the structuralist or structuralist may be too explicit for some of this stuff, but uh, I want to use the camera and I want to use cinematography to help create that cinematic, empathetic, visual, visceral experience that can only come from cinema. So I, I, I hope I'm not asking you to repeat yourself with the story, but I'm curious if you have a good example of how from a cinematography standpoint or even from a directing standpoint where the audience is experiencing the movie with the characters. Like, can you give me an example of where you've done that in particular or where you've made a choice to go in that direction more? It really takes the director to do that. I try to infuse certain things um, when I can, for instance, you know, a really simple tool is to ask yourself and, or to ask the director, which I often do, whose scene is this? And if, you know, character B's scene in this scenario. So if it's character B's scene, then maybe I want to always have character B around. I want to have a clean single on character B so that we have a clean focused experience of character B and their facial expressions but I want to shoot all of character A over character B's shoulder so that character B is always present in the scene and the audience is always reminded that they are seeing things with character B. Uh, The directors that you've worked with did they often come to the table with these kinds of ideas already in place or do you kind of I guess talk to me about how you work with a director to uh, help design these kinds of ideas. Hmm. Well, working with directors is really all over the map. I've worked with directors who have had explicit storyboards that were drawn exactly like they wanted them shot. And in those cases, I simply execute. Um, And if a director knows exactly what they want, it's their prerogative to have exactly what they want. And it's my job to give it to them. And I am happy to do that. Um, But I've also worked with directors who say oh cinematography i don't know anything about cinematography you're great so you you do that and then i do (laughs) whatever i want i don't actually want to do whatever i want i want to do what the director wants me to do and the director often doesn't actually know what they want me to do so in that case it becomes my job to figure out what the director actually wants even though they don't know without naming names like 
what percentage of directors that you work with do you think come to the table with like, here's how I want to do it and how many are, are asking you to solve that problem for them? To be honest, um, and not to diss on any directors that I've worked with, but a huge number of directors, probably 30 plus percent come to the table saying, this is what I want. And I know that they don't actually want that, but they think they do. And so I always entertain what they want, but I try to very gently suggest that that's that's good, but let me also try this and show you this. I'm all for preparation in my own work. I prepare very explicitly. I write scripts that are not in script form with very explicit camera movements and um, lighting and things that you're not allowed to put in a script. But I know I'm going to direct them, so whatever, I'll do whatever I want. And I'm all for directors preparing in any way that they see fit. But in my own work, what I found, and in everyone else's work, what I found is no matter how much you prepare, when you get there and you see the real actors really run the real dialogue in the real space, then there are ample opportunities to create much better, more interesting, exciting ways to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. And often you realize the way that you would plan to do it just ain't going to work. I really believe that uh, there's a Zen saying that if you do not understand the path as it meets your eyes, how can you know the way that you walk? That you have to go and see the performance and see the architecture of the space and think about the focal lengths and you'll know how to light it and you'll know how to shoot it. And people somehow have the idea that you have to know exactly where the camera's going to go. But I don't think anybody really thinks you need to know exactly where the lights are going to go. Like you get there and you set up lights and you move them around and you find you find the spot. You find exactly where the key light needs to be. And you have to do the same thing with the camera. And you have to be responsive. If your cinema that's not responsive is cinema that's dead there i there are people who i've seen who do like extensive storyboards and then just don't deviate from them at all and sometimes i feel like i always describe it as being kind of fussy like mm-hmm. it's fussy and it looks like over art directed and like not, like there's no living creature on the mm-hmm. set it's all just movable prop people yeah i think if you're there in the moment on the set with the collaboration of your actors and your dp and your art director and you're everybody who's collaborating then something naturally great will arise if you're forcing something no matter how great the thing you're forcing is it's always going to be forced yeah it's never gonna it's never going to come to fruition by itself it's never going to have a life of its own it's always going to have the life that you forced it to have I i think that a lot of people heard auteur theory in college or whatever and got it in their head that they were the author. And there are, are certainly people like Stanley Kubrick or whatever who have a specific signature that, that is unmistakable. But I think for almost everyone else, you know, it's kind of a mistake to think I should control. I think I, can, I think that's the real problem is trying to control every element. Well, Stanley Kubrick is famous for doing infinite numbers of takes. Yeah. He did infinite numbers of takes because he was trying to find the thing that was right and that had the magic that was alive. And he had to search for it over 70 takes or however many. He he didn't 
have this thing that had to be exact. And he wanted to do it over and over again until he got something exact. He wanted to do it over and over again until he got the thing that felt right. And that thing is alive and you discover it with your actors and with your crew. So, um, what do you think for, for you? Like if, if, uh, if you were going to invent the best possible situation for working with a director as a DP, uh, what, what to you is the optimal level of collaboration? Like how much do you want to collaborate? How much do you want them to come in with? How much do you want them to rely on, on you to embellish their ideas? I don't like directors who don't have ideas because they don't make great films. I want directors who have ideas that are somewhere in the somewhat general to somewhat specific, but not super general or super specific range. Mm -hmm. If a director can give me enough to work with, then I can turn what they give me into something great. Um, If they can't give me much, then I have a hard time making something out of nothing. Yeah. So the, the more raw material, the more general raw material I can get from a director, I think the better job I can do for them. What kind of raw material? Lookbooks, references to other movies? What's the, what's the, what do you think is the best way to build a movie experience that's unique and, and different from every other one? Well, uh, any kind of visual signatures, a, a sort of a description of the characters and their arcs, backstory on characters, anything that I can have to help me more deeply understand the director's intentions and the the film's intentions. The more information I can have about the director's intentions for the film, the more I can respond to them. So what are some examples of materials that directors have presented you that have like really sparked something with you and have given you that fodder? So I had this uh, this director who was a producer on my film who is one of the smartest people I know. And I was shooting a short for him. And I said, so what do you want this film to look like? And he said, let me think about that. And he brought me a picture of a watermelon that was a very early 1920s dye transfer (laughs) photograph, a still life of a watermelon. And he said, this is what I want my movie to look like. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell? (laughs) And that's all he would give me because he wanted to see what I would do with it. And I saw him do things like that with actors repeatedly, that he would give you not enough information and obtuse information and figure out what you would do with it. <laughs> and once, he, once you had something concrete, then he could respond to the more concrete thing that you had to offer him. So it was a really interesting interplay where he didn't try to know what he wanted. He wanted the experts to try to show him what he wanted so that he could respond to what the experts were giving him. So uh, so how did you make the film look like the 1920s dye shot of a watermelon? This was uh, back in the days of film. Uh, oh, no. We shot... Uh, 7248 and we bleach bypassed it and I shot it through a bunch of diffusion and a chocolate filter. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And it looked like that. Did it? I mean, it didn't really look. I mean, maybe if I had shot a watermelon still life with that process, it might have looked sort of like it. But we were shooting actors. So it was not actually applicable at all (laughs) to a watermelon. So, I mean, do you think 
I, I guess only he could really answer this question, but do you think he was giving you that so that you have something to react to, but he didn't really have a, here's what I want my film to look like. He didn't have any, he wouldn't have said, I want a chocolate filter and a bleach bypass in this film stock right. or whatever. Right. Was it just that this watermelon shot gave him a certain feeling or emotion that he was trying to capture? Or do you think he was just giving you something, throwing something at you to make you react to it? That's probably both. He probably liked this picture of a watermelon and he also just wanted to <laughs> get me to react. There is a, another moment on his same set where he, it's a, this is short and it's a story of a fellow and he is, he wakes up in the morning and he makes his coffee and he's reading his newspaper and he looks out the window and there's a pirate digging a hole in his backyard and he goes out and he gets in a fight and he ends up killing the pirate. Um, I could, go on but that's not important the important <laughs> thing is that the actor who plays the pirate kept saying to him over and over again you know what's my motivation you know i'm i'm a pirate but like am i where am i from what kind of treasure am i looking for and he kept saying you're just a magical pirate i don't know like <laughs> repeatedly like wouldn't give the guy anything and right before we rolled the first take he went to the actor and he said, you're Satan and you're here to make this guy's life a living hell. And action. <laughs> <laughs> so he would, you know, that was, that's his shtick is uh -huh. to, to fuck with you <laughs> in order to get you to give him something really authentic. That's fun. Yeah. It's interesting. I've always, I always wonder about people who are able to do that. Although you always hear about like, Lars von Trier or whatever where it's kind of well this fellow is a lovely guy I think he's I, a sweetheart and yeah. that's how it works for him yeah yeah no I mean it's it's playful and fun and yeah. and kind of keeps people on their toes creatively which is sort of what you want you want to mm -hmm. see that on a set and you don't see that on sets nearly enough where I feel no, like everyone, don't. everyone's under a lot of pressure I feel like I, I sort of want to get a little bit more uh, of your of your backstory when you were in uh, art school and moving into cinematography. If you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about maybe more into college and and when you started actually working with with film cameras and working with film. Well, I uh, I went to the San Francisco Art Institute, um, and I was really interested in photography, and I got there was really interested in photography. I got a merit scholarship in photography. I got there and I took a color class because I'd never done color. I'd always done black and white. Thought, okay, I'll try color. Um, the first day of class, the instructor took a photograph of everybody. And the second day of class, he gave us the photograph he had taken of us and said, go in the dark room and print this. And I went in the dark room and I printed it. And it, you know, on like the third try, I got it in the ballpark probably not very good I have no real memory but it was you know the colors were more or less right and then I was like well that was boring and so then I tore the negative up in little pieces and I found some gauze and I scrounged some hair out of the corner and I stuffed it all into the enlarger tray and I turned everything to yellow orange and printed it and I took it to him and I said look what I made and he said does this make you happy and I said yes and he said you shouldn't be in my class and so that was the end of my career as a photographer. Wow. Yeah, it was hilarious. It was Ansel Adams founded the photo department at the Art Institute, and it was very much in that tradition of fine art photography. Oh, man. I mean, it's like I understand the idea of formal training in something, and if you're there to learn a specific technique, but you're in, you're in fucking art school, you yeah. know? Like, like, so that was the only department at the Art Institute that was anything like that. Everything else was a free-for-all. So I moved on over to the... Um, what was then called the performance video department 
Um, I was not interested in performance or video, but I was doing experimental sound work in sort of environments. Um, and I got particularly interested in experimental music. And there were only two sound classes offered at the Art Institute, and one was sound for film. So I took the sound for film class, and everybody was making sound for their films. But I wasn't really that interested, and in, I didn't have a film to make sound for. So I was just making sound, and then I thought, well, I could make a film for my sound. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. I had made a, you know, I, I can't. You know, I think it was some kind of thing with way too much reverb on a bunch of hockey games <laughs> layered on top of each other or something. <laughs> I still have it somewhere. So I went out with a Bolex. You know, it was a sort of like, oh, you're a filmmaker. That's like a painter, except that you have a Bolex, right? So I got trained one day, and the next day I took the Bolex and 100 feet of black and white reversal film, and I walked down and found this really lovely deteriorating concrete wall and I shot a hundred feet handheld of the wall and then I hand processed it. I think you showed me this film. <laughs> I, I may have. <laughs> and I was in love. <laughs> and I never looked back after that. I made 13 16 millimeter films when I was a student, all of them experimental a couple of them with people in them, but technically all experimental, um, mostly about texture. And then three years out of film school was the first time I made a film after that, and it was semi-narrative. And what film was that? That was Every Day Here. Oh, wow, that was three years after you got out of college? Yep. Wow, when I met you, were you still in college? No, I'd just gotten out of college. I had just graduated right before I met you on... Watership Warriors. Watership Warriors. I, speaking of which, I, uh, I <laughs> Facebook messaged David Pryor to see if he had a copy of it, and he doesn't have one. Really? They, they wouldn't even give him one. They hated him so much. Really? <laughs> That's lame. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad when you're the director of a movie and you don't have a copy of it. Yeah, that's too bad. Well. No, I have I have the German version. I know. You gave, <laughs> you gave me a copy of it. <laughs> Maybe we should get it to David. Yeah, right. <laughs> It was actually this uh, film that I'm working on now is about audio dubbing. I was like, maybe I can get one of these guys to redub it back into English from the German. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> that would be. Wow. So you would just, I mean, I actually, I think I had just finished film school maybe a year before that. That was what, 97? Yeah. And, or, uh, it, was like, it was like January, I think, of 97. Yeah, it was January of 97. Yeah. I had, I had finished college like exactly a year before that. That was crazy. I don't know, but I mean, I think there's something to be said about working on those kinds of films, but you coming from that kind of a background, uh, you know, fine arts background, fine arts filmmaking, and then going to work on basically a straight to video. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call Watership Warriors an exploitation movie. It's not that, <laughs> but it's kind of like a very low budget genre movie where there's just not a lot to work with. And uh, I, I, I don't want to say anything negative about it because David Pryor gave me, you know, my first several shots at working on a film and he's never been anything but a nice guy to me and he's made like I think 40 straight to video films but what's it like coming out of art school and then going to work on something like that where it, art where it's so uh, 
it's it's so about kind of finding something new and 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 learning something in the process to going to a, a film project where I don't think David would disagree with me if I say they're trying to make a product. It's a product oriented operation. Like they get a budget and they have to make this script. It was a trial by fire. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. I had had no real film education. You know, nobody. And, and we should say you were a camera assistant on it. You were not the DP. Yes, I was not a not the DP. I was a camera assistant. I one of my friends, like a skater friend from my teenage years, um, was the production manager, and he called me up and said, "Hey, do you want to be a camera assistant on this movie?" And I didn't know enough to know that I had no idea what a camera assistant did. I thought I've used cameras. <laughs> I can do that. So the couple of days before we started shooting, the camera package arrived from Atlanta and myself and the first day C were to prep it. Now I was a second. The first had been an electrician prior. He had never been a AC before. Yeah. So he did. And the DP was a gaffer. Yeah. And the DP. Yeah. <laughs> so the DP didn't know about the camera, nor did he care. And neither of the ACs did. So I suddenly sit down with an SR package and there's a follow focus and a map box. And I've never seen one in real life. And I don't actually know what they do. I don't know how the lightweight rods mount. I don't know anything at all about the camera. And it was a little bit of a disaster. And it took us a very long time, hours, to figure out how all the pieces went together. Which was really, it's not really what you want with camera assistant. Um, I didn't know. But the first AC didn't know any better than, any more than you did at that point, right? No, he, he really didn't. I had to figure out how to load it. And I had learned nothing about how you do this stuff in film school. I mean, it was really like, here's a Bolex, go make a movie. Really? There was no protocol. There was no anything. I had no idea how to be on a set. One of the things I didn't know how to do, one of the many, many things was to tape the magazines when they had film in them. Oh, shit. So I was checking to make sure, you know, it's, it's like it'd been a, you know, the fourth 15 hour day in a row or something. And suddenly as I'm, downloading the film at the end of the night I'm like oh man I, I, I've got to check and make sure I took all the core adapters out and so I just start opening magazines looking for core adapters and well this magazine has the core adapter in it and it also has the film in it with on the core adapter that's so already been shot or not that had already been shot oh shit so uh, what little bit of professionalism I had was to go own up to the fact that I had just exposed this roll of film yeah. to the DP. And the DP was very, um, he didn't yell at me. He was actually <laughs> surprisingly pleasant about the whole thing. In the end, it turned out that it had been so quick and in such subdued light that the film was fine. Uh-huh. So I should have lied. <laughs> I, I don't recommend that to anyone. If you accidentally erase the media, tell somebody so it can get reshot, get fired, you'll still work again. If you don't tell anybody, you won't work again. <laughs> you'll, you'll never have... work in Mobile, Alabama yes. again. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that'd be terrible. I was making $400 a week, man. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I got fired, but I said, you know, I really want to stay on. I won't load film anymore, but if I, you know, I'll slate, I'll be the second second or the camera PA or the whatever. Um, so they 
demoted the first down the second and i became the slate guy uh-huh. and they brought in a new real camera assistant from atlanta who was probably not probably definitely the biggest asshole on the planet <laughs> who really couldn't do anything other than scream at me and the second the previous first um and make homophobic jokes oof he is an ex-military guy and pretty much everything he had to say was either you're a fucking idiot or some joke about sucking his cock, hmm. which I took to mean that he really actually wanted somebody to suck his cock. Luckily, that wasn't me. <laughs> 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 there was like one particular moment that stands out where he'd been yelling at me for anything and everything. And he said, you know, and remember, I know nothing. So he says, go get me an optical flat. And I don't know what an optical flat is. And I know it's going to happen. But I don't have much of a choice. Mm -hmm. So I say, I'm sorry, I don't know what an optical flat is. And so very loudly so that the whole crew can hear him, which is pretty much how he addressed me in general when he was yelling at me. God damn, you're such a fucking idiot. Fucking optical flat's a clear filter, asshole. Which is, you know... You, you learn pretty fast what an optical flat is in that situation. I don't yeah. <laughs> know that you learn it well, but you do learn it fast. Yeah. And I never forgot what an optical flat is. <laughs> Every time you reach for an optical flat, do you think of him for a second? Yeah. No, I've, for years, I dreamed of becoming a big studio DP and flying him out from Atlanta and then showing up to set on the first day and seeing him and go, oh, him? No, I don't fly him back to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you uh i'm over it now have you kept tabs on him on imdb and seen like the trajectory of his career is he still uh, working i have not i don't even remember his last name every time i have a vendetta i always i always just kind of check to see and you know it's it, it's never a good thing to do because <laughs> it's either like good they failed in life and which makes me a terrible person or or or, or it's like oh my christ they're working on all the biggest things of all time you know yeah, well, I've uh, I've known a number of people who have uh, moved to L.A. and done very well for themselves, and a lot of them, when I've seen them later, have had a new, weird, offensive personality and seemed kind of miserable. Because, you know, when you get into a dog-eat-dog world and you're fighting your way to the top, then you end up with the personality of someone who has fought their way to the top. And I'd rather just do good work. Well, talk a little bit about that too, because you've made a choice and obviously you come to Los Angeles and you work, you go work wherever you're needed, but you've made a life in San Francisco and, you know, rarely do I come across somebody who's in the film world in San Francisco who doesn't either know you or know of you. What's it like to base your, uh, operation from, from a place that's not sort of the central area where films are made? Well, I'm just big fish in a small pond kind of thing. I don't know that I'm necessarily big fish, but it's a small pond. There's a saying that people with talent and ambition move to New York. People with talent and no ambition move to San Francisco. And people with ambition and no talent move to L.A. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I think it's true of me. Um, <laughs> my ambition is far smaller than my interest in making good work. Um, and the thing that I can say about working in San Francisco that I can't say about New York or L.A., and I'm, I've worked a fair bit in both those markets, though not exhaustively, so I can't speak authoritatively. But in the Bay Area, you virtually never work with anybody who's a dick. Everybody in the Bay Area 
is really good at their job, really hardworking and really pleasant. And you never have attitude because if you have attitude, you just don't get called back because there's not enough work to support people who are assholes. Mm-hmm. When I work in LA, I there's usually somebody who's an asshole because there's enough work that that person can actually work. I don't know exactly what the formula is, but <laughs> I love working in the Bay Area because it's such a pleasant place to work. Well, Film Arts Foundation's not around anymore, are they? No, they got absorbed by the San Francisco Film Society who do the film and, festival. And didn't you used to teach at Film Arts Foundation? I did, used to teach. I've, I've been fired from three teaching jobs at Film Arts Foundation, Bay Area Video Coalition, and then from California College of the Arts every single time because I'm a working DP and I've gotten a job and I can't, you know, work for three hours one night a week for $30 an hour (laughs) teaching instead of shooting a commercial. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So when I call the day before and say, hey, I just got hired on a commercial, I'm not going to be able to teach tomorrow night and then they yell at me and fire me, then I just figure that's life. These days I do visiting lecture stuff for Stanford Documentary Program and various other places. Well, and and that actually leads to something else that I wanted to talk to you about because you shoot a fair amount of narrative, but you also shoot a fair amount of documentary. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how the habit of shooting documentary and narrative, how those two things affect one another. When you're shooting a narrative, what documentary stuff do you bring with you and vice versa? Um, It's mostly vice versa. I would say when I teach cinematography, I teach narrative cinematography because narrative includes everything. If you understand narrative cinematography in a deep way, then you can shoot anything. Um, People who shoot only documentary can't shoot a feature. They simply wouldn't know how. They wouldn't have the broad tool set that one needs. Shooting a feature is the hardest thing you can shoot a million times harder than a music video, a million times harder than many kinds of docs. And why, why do you say that? Like what, what makes it harder than shooting all those other things? Um, because you have so many, so vastly many visual styles um, to work with. And narrative cinematography includes everything. There's, you know, it includes verite filmmaking. It includes experimental filmmaking. It includes deep camera craft and deep understanding of how to expose an image and how optics work and lens choices and lighting. All of those things are incredibly important. Um, If you're shooting documentary, you might come up just shooting with a zoom lens. You may never actually have to learn how you choose a focal length with prime lenses. You may never truly come to understand how to choose your depth of field with a given aperture because you have a zoom lens and you might be shooting an available light and so you shoot with the focal length that's appropriate for where you can stand and exposing it how you have to expose it in order to get your exposure that's interesting yeah that's a cool that's a cool uh way to, way to think about it but in another sense doing the documentary filmmaking allows me to think about narrative in a different way How so? Like it allows, like when you're shooting a documentary, it should feel real. You don't want it to feel false. Um, So how, how do you maybe take those tools, um, choices of focal lengths or handheld, whatever, 
from documentary and apply it to narrative in order to get the sort of uh, an authentic verite sensibility in what is essentially a lie mm-hmm. in narrative <laughs> filmmaking. It's a strategic and important lie, but a lie nonetheless. Can you give me an example of a lesson that you've learned from watching real people and working on real documentary that came in at just the right moment or uh, dropped somehow into your narrative work? Um, I worked on a corporate job recently that was very cinematic. Um, And it was all handheld and it was very verite and there were a lot of characters moving through space. Um, And I think that years of shooting verite style documentary um, years on and off because I don't shoot anything exclusively and I, I never have the Bay Area is too small a market to shoot any one style exclusively except maybe car commercials which I don't do um, so so I had I had tools as a camera operator um, from shooting verite documentary that allowed me to think about how to sort of dance with the actors, how to get into the right place in order to see what was important. Mm-hmm. And with a scripted project, you have the uh, the advantage of knowing what's going to happen. So it's a dance where you can already know what the steps are instead of having to improvise. Oh, that's cool. It's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, documentary, verite documentary is improvisation. Um, There's always improv in everything, but there's a lot of it in verite documentary. And in in fact, the nature of verite documentary should be that it's virtually all improvised. Yeah. That you're always responding in the moment to the thing that's happening. Whereas with features, um, the improvisation is calculated and you have a, finite amount of it so that you can be responsive to the things that are inherently out of control but you can plan for the things that are in control and i don't know if there's really an answer to this but is is there a technique or a a way that you would approach shooting a scene to make it to shooting a narrative scene to give it more of that this is happening now this is spontaneous there's life in this moment kind of juice that you would get just by showing up and making a documentary about anything hmm that's an interesting question, and I think it would depend on the the script and the story. In one way, a wide-shot lockdown camera feels much more authentic in a narrative context than any amount of handheld or anything else because the camera strategy gets out of the way mm-hmm. and the performance can can carry itself. In general, we don't do that because we want things to move faster and we want to be able to control how fast they move in an editorial, et cetera. Um, but I think that it's in my own work, I do a lot of single take scenes because I'm really interested in the time spent, the, a long shot that gives you a lot of information, a two shot, mm-hmm. three shot with multiple characters gives you as a viewer the opportunity to sort of be there with the actors. No one's telling you how to be there with the actors through editorial or through multiple shot choice decisions. You're just there getting to see it and experience it. 
a lot of times when I think about your style, and maybe it's unfair to typify your style by one shot, but it was a shot, I think it was early in every day here, where we're in this kitchen and it's like a widest shot and we sit on it for a really long kind of uncomfortable beat. And then at a certain very deliberate point, but not a point that I was expecting as a viewer, you started pushing in. I, do you know you must know what I'm talking about? I hope maybe I'm misremembering it, but there there was a certain rhythm and kind of unexpectedness to how you did that. And and I always think about I, I think that when I think of your work, I always think of that shot hmm. in particular, and that's one that you directed as well as mm-hmm. DP'd. When you're constructing something like that, is is that something that you plan? Is it something that you just kind of go with a gut instinct? In this particular example in every day here, my first short out of college, the moment you're referring to is very much one of those structuralist things where the ability to move the camera is a thing unto itself. And so you have a essentially dead shot with no one in it. And the camera just starts to move somewhat inexplicably. And when it does, all of your baggage about cameras moving and empty shots comes into play and you try to make sense of it. I'm, as a director and to a degree as a DP, but especially as a director, I'm really interested in mixing unlike things. That if you take two unlike things and you put them together, be they music and picture or through an editorial choice, that the the audience will be forced to make something out of that. And if it's deliberate and it's the right mixing of things, then that can really bring everything to life. If I say something to you and you don't understand it, you'll say what? But it's probable that before I've even had a chance to repeat myself, you figured out what it was I said. You didn't understand it and now you do. And the way that you came to understand it is that your brain went into overdrive and it looked through tens of thousands of files it's got in there to reference what did the thing I thought I heard sound like and how did it match other words in the sentence and how does it relate to that thing that happened to me when I was three years old because it sounded a little bit like a particular experience that it reminded me of. And so there are a million pieces that your mind brings to try to put those actual pieces together. So I'm really interested in pieces that don't go together, but that the audience feels like they need to put together. And it's not necessarily an explicit thing, but in the example of the shot that suddenly starts pushing in on an empty room after sitting on it in a wide shot, you try to make sense of that. Your brain goes into overdrive trying to make sense of that all subconsciously and your engagement with trying to make sense of that is an engagement with yourself and ultimately with the film and that's kind of what I'm most interested in is how the audience engages with themselves through the film. Wow that's amazing. So when you're DPing somebody else's film are you able to bring that kind of an element to it or is that something that the director really has to bring in and if they don't you can't really inject that into it? In a way it's It would be unfair of me to try to explicitly inject that kind of thing. I will sometimes have that kind of cinematic idea and run it past the director. Um, But I I don't want to direct other people's movies. I mean, that's people... Directors ask me sometimes, well, you direct your own films. You know, I don't don't want 
someone else trying to direct my film because dps are famous for trying to yeah. take over and direct the movie and i couldn't be less interested in directing your film i direct my own films and they're really good so why would i want to direct your film <laughs> <laughs> but no no honestly i really like whether my films are really good or not i don't know but i am really interested in my films and i believe that as a filmmaker as a director my film has to be my film and if it gets too watered down being other people's films then it won't be good there's got to be somebody behind the film to care about it and love it and have it be their own in order for it to really be a great work, I think. And I don't want to take that away from another director. I want to support other directors however I can, and I want to contribute however I can, but I would never want to take away a film. So when it comes to something as specific as infusing my own directorial sensibilities, I'm very careful. Mm -hmm. And if I feel like it's appropriate to the project, then I will potentially run something by a director um, and see if they're interested directorially. But I would never, you know, hard sell anybody on something that was not something that was authentic to their project. But would somebody look at Everyday Here or, or your feature and say, like, I want the look that you're getting or I want like this one shot that I'm referencing. How would you go about even asking for that kind of a thing? Like you bring that to your work as a director and it's something you could suggest as a DP. Do people ever come to you and ask you specifically for that kind of for for that vibe that you're that you're creating that's very unique? I don't think anybody ever actually does because I mean people don't want to make movies because they want you to make their movie. Mm -hmm. They want to make movies because they have something to say. Hopefully they have something to say. I've certainly worked for people who didn't have anything to say. The idea is that as a director, you have something authentic and individualized to say and that you need creative mental management in the form of a DP to help you say it. But you don't want them to say it for you. Mm -hmm. You want to have help. <laughs> it's true. So my, my job as a DP is to is creative mental management. My job is to... Figure out what needs to be said based on what the director wants to say and come up with a technical means to express that. And there's always going to be some creativity built into that. It's not like you want this, so I'll need this light and this gel and this whatever, because you know, the math is not so simple as to add up different lights or different cameras and get a product. Um, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of art in that. I really only have one other thing I kind of want to explore with you. And again, I don't know how, how deep we want to get into it, but you, you know, you've had a great deal of success at the festival level with your shorts and your feature. Has that opened any doors for you? If someone were listening to this and they were interested in getting into making films for festivals or, or submitting their films to festivals, you know, what are the things you've learned that have helped you along the way? I made my feature everything strange and new. And a lot of people after that would come and say, Hey, you had a successful feature. Well, successful is never going to make its money back. But yeah, it won some awards. It played at Sundance. Yeah, it was a successful feature. People come to me and they say, you had a successful feature. You know, can you give me any advice? Because I'm going to make a feature. And the advice that I give people is, do you have something that you deeply need to say? That if you are on your deathbed and you have not said that you will feel like you have failed and that your life was not worth it? Or... 
are you hoping to get famous and rich and get laid a lot? And if it's the latter, you really shouldn't make movies because it's not going to happen. <laughs> You've got to make films because you got to make films. You got to make things that are deeply authentic and honest. And that doesn't mean that it has to, you know, be autobiographical and it has to, you know, be in some explicit way honest. Mm-hmm. But you've got to speak honestly about whatever it is that you're making. You've got to be vulnerable and you can't pull any punches. You just have to lay it all out there and you have to really be honest in your directing and your storytelling and your interactions with your crew and your cast and, you know, not just in the actual film, but in the making of the film, you've just got to be fully there. And if you can do that, then you've got a real shot at making a great film. But if you're trying to make a film because you think films are cool and you really like how cool films are and you want to be the guy who makes the car chase scene, you know, car chase scene movies, Hollywood's always going to do it better than you. Don't try to make a tits and ass car chase feature and expect it to play at Sundance. Well, even, you know, Justin Lin, who made, who makes the Fast and Furious movies, he started with a, a feature that I believe went to Sundance called Better Luck Tomorrow. Hmm. And he started as an Indian kind of now he's making the largest movies made at Universal. Well, what tends to happen with people who make movies that do well at Sundance is they somehow make it into the studio system and then they never make another great work again. They make highly successful films often, and you could argue that they make better films, but they never make the thing that is honest and authentic ever again. There are probably a handful of examples of P.T. Anderson, who continues to make interesting, authentic, artistically-minded feature films. But then you've got a million people who did well at Sundance and you know, got absorbed into the studio system. And, you know, I know a, uh, a director, an African-American director who made a very sort of thoughtful drama and it did really well. And he signed with an agency in LA and he started, he was, he's African-American and he started getting offers to direct, you know, gangsters in the hood movies because he was black. Yeah. And at the time he worked at a clothing retailer and he was turning down the opportunity to work in the studio system making gangsta movies because he was black. He would rather work at a clothing retailer. And what happened with him? He does some commercial work and he still makes his indie stuff and um, he's working on getting a second feature off the ground right now. But he, he wasn't interested in buying into that studio system because he knew it would eat his soul that if his value in the studio system was the guy who was black, then that was not, uh, that was not what he wanted to do. And I have a deep respect for him because, you know, he could have walked away from indie filmmaking and started making, you know, a quarter million dollars a picture doing black people movies. Mm -hmm. But would you you have that discipline? If Hollywood came knocking, would you? I don't know. I suspect (laughs) that, I would probably very begrudgingly agree to direct some piece of crap and then like fuck it up and they would take it away from me because they didn't like the tracking in in the middle of the scene with nobody in it shot that I had done. 
Um, and then I would never work in Hollywood again. I would pay money to see a studio head have structuralism explained to them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know full well if I ever agreed to do a studio film, I would shoot it so that it had no coverage and it can only be cut one way. <laughs> <laughs> and that is exactly the thing that you get fired for in the studio system. But so, what about as a DP? I mean, that would be a different thing. Well, as a DP, now, I, as a DP, I love my craft. And I can love my craft doing the most banal corporate interviews. And I can love my craft doing an indie feature. I love my craft a lot more doing an indie feature. It enriches my soul. I, I Even on a indie feature that's like long, hard days and you know, the dysfunction that often comes with low budgets. I still feel like I'm doing something important to the world and I'm helping somebody make the thing that they love, the thing that they have to say so that they can go to their grave happy. And it's just deeply rewarding and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. And I make 20% the money I make on a corporate job. And that's fine with me. I work five times as hard. I make 20% as much money and I couldn't be happier. I think that's a great place to leave it. Is there uh, an online place that people can find you if they're looking for you? The trick to finding me online is knowing how to spell my first name correctly. F-R-A-Z-E-R. FraserBradshaw.com. F-R-A-Z-E-R. Bradshaw is just like it sounds. Cool. Fraser Bradshaw, thank you uh, so much for coming out. Thank you, Ben. So that was Fraser Bradshaw. And on the next episode of the Cinematography Podcast... Coming up on the next episode of a very special Cinematography Podcast. A very, very special Cinematography Podcast. The guest will be Abraham Martinez, or Abe Martinez to his friends. Uh, Abe is a extremely talented cinematographer. He shot um, he shot movies. He's also worked as a camera assistant for some of the, the biggest and most well-known cinematographers out there and has learned and absorbed a tremendous amount of information uh, over the years and does some amazing, amazing work. I met Abe Martinez, God, 15 years ago, perhaps. He was actually my loader on a movie. Oh, and, nice. And it, was, and it was a terrible, terrible movie. At least I've never even seen the movie, but it was a terrible, terrible sequel where the stars of the movie were dogs. I'll just say (laughs) it was one of those movies where like, yeah, wow. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, Abe, I was immediately taken by him because he had an amazing work ethic and a terrific can do attitude. And he and I became really good friends from that. And we've kept in touch ever since. And without further ado, here is Abe Martinez's war story. And now, war stories. Taking a camera along to another country is going into the unknown, but also there to capture and tell stories. When my wife and kids and I, we sold our house in L.A., moved to Kenya. As soon as I get there, I shoot a movie. And after I shoot the movie, we began looking for a place to live. Me being a, a cameraman, I had to find a place that can house and shelve my cameras. So it was very important that maybe I have a little office or a little safe place in Kenya to lock up my gear. And we went to how everyone else looks for houses in Kenya is you can look up on the wall at the grocery store. So we looked up on the wall, we found a place to live and we went to go look at it. Monkeys used to come to the lawn and to the yard and we found a house and I was ready to make a deposit but my wife said, you know what, this is not our house. There's a house that would sit with me. Let's just wait and see. So as we're sitting there talking at the grocery store, I look up, I see a house sold for 
you know, a third less of what we were looking for. So I said, let's try this. It seemed like it's too good to be true. It's, it's a three-bedroom house at way cheaper than we're looking at, and it's for rent. So we hop in the car, driving uh, just outside Nairobi to a place called Karen. We pull up to the house, and it was a beautiful home on a big, sprawling land, greens, and, and even there, too, monkeys would show up uh, to the lawn. There's a cow walking around. It was almost too good to be true. We found out it was a one big house, six or maybe eight bedrooms, and it was chopped in half. Now, the lady showing me the house was a lady named Winnie. Basically, she cut the house in half, and she lived on the back side. I lived in the front. And she asked me what I did, and I said I was a cameraman, and her face dropped. And I was just like, what? What? She, she told us she was a, a widow. Well, her face dropped because, she goes, you're a cameraman. So was my husband, who just passed away. She goes, in fact, the place that you're looking at used to be our film studio. He used to keep his cameras down here, and she showed me into the basement where there were shelves where he used to keep his cameras. He left Germany as a freelance filmmaker, and he came to Kenya to work on the movie Out of Africa. She goes, come around to my side of the house. As she takes us around the corner, I see three large Steinbecks, I see rolls and rolls of 16-millimeter film from like the Congo War and from Vietnam. He was a war cameraman. I also saw boxes and boxes of slides from Leica. She was throwing these slides away, these precious slides. As I picked up the slide, I looked into the light, I saw the slide, and I saw an old Mitchell camera with a monkey sitting on top of the camera. I saw pictures of him shooting in Malta on various movies color charts, there was a uh, frame and focus charts, there was a slate that was rescued in the jungle of a burning plane that he survived on. There's Steinbeck's 16mm film of footage of war from the BBC, uh, projectors, lighting kits, old lenses that were sitting just beyond the door, just beyond the wall. There was about a billion stories that were to be told of this little ancient archive. My wife looked to me, she goes, this is the house where we're going to move. And now, short ends. So that was Abe Martinez's war story, and be sure to come back to us for our next episode where we're going to sit down and talk with Abe Martinez for uh, an extended length of time about all kinds of cool stuff. So, uh, now's the time of the show where we talk about our obsession of the week. We talk about uh, things that we're interested in. It could be anything. It could be a piece of technology. It could be an event. It could be a television program. It could be anything. And today, what is your short end, Ben? What is your obsession this week? What are you most interested in? Well, uh, actually, it was something you helped me out with. My friend Bob DeRosa and I are working on a web series called 20 Seconds to Live, and you lent us the brand new uh, Blackmagic 4K camera, which was really exciting to work with. We worked with uh, DP George Foyt, who I'll probably get on here one of these days. And uh, it was a really interesting experience because, like a lot of people, I saw the Blackmagic 4K camera at NAB last year. Uh, I'd seen the production camera the previous year. I've had criticisms of the camera, but you never really know till you're in the field playing with it, shooting with this. You, you also lent us some amazing Schneider lenses that really uh, gave us a, a beautiful cinematic look. And also those were the Xenon lenses, the Xenon lenses. Is it Schneider Xenon? Is that? Yep. Sh- Schneider Xenon lenses. They're great lenses. Yeah. Amazing to work with in terms of their flexibility and how they, you know, the professional cinema lenses 
And I feel like in a DSLR world where we get used to all these kludgy things you attach to cameras to make the follow focus work or something like when you work, when you go back to working with cinema lenses, you never want to go back. And these lenses are, you know, amazing, even though we weren't working with a full frame camera, you know, it would have covered that. And the look is just beautiful. And uh, the 4K camera was uh, a real interesting experience um, just because, you know, it's it's got a small form uh, factor, easy to move around. We, the previous episode of this uh, web web series we'd shot on an Alexa, mm-hmm. which is obviously, you know, like. Oh, yeah, it's you know, the gold standard yeah. cameras right now. But but and I'm not complaining about the Alexa. It's just big. And and we were shooting on an Alexa with a red zoom that was probably as oh, yeah. big as the Alexa itself. 1885. It's a huge, yeah. huge lens. Yeah. So the whole rig together was probably close to 50 pounds, maybe wow. more. Wow. And and so, you know, like handheld all, all my no, all my handheld okay. shots went out the door. We, we didn't do any handheld. <laughs> Smart. Uh, on this other one, there was definitely some handheld stuff that we needed to do. It was very horror movie looking. We had a lot of a lot of dark handheld creepiness and you know the light form factor was good some of the things that i thought were problems with the camera on paper like the fact that it doesn't have a, a field swappable battery not as big of a deal but of course you lent us a great battery system i think it's something that if i was to buy the camera i would have to budget in getting some kind of external battery system as part of the purchase price the batteries used were the paglock batteries and those are great batteries they were great. They worked great. You know, we didn't have any problems directly related to the camera. The um, the SSD was interesting because the guy down the hall from you, uh, Tim's Johnson, lent us uh, an SSD that we were able to use from Blacklist Productions. Working with the SSD was fine, but it's another thing that you have to figure when you're if you're going to buy that camera, you're probably going to want a few SSDs. So a in, Thunderbolt dock. A th- <laughs> yeah. Which you also lent me. You're going to need to uh, offload that footage. You're going to need to be yeah. able to move that. Yeah. And it, a- and it takes a little, it's just, you know, you're generating 4k footage. It's going to take more time. You know, I, it's funny because like in the DSLR world, I find that I'll just leave the camera rolling and go redirect the actors and, and keep going because you can be very efficient that way. Hmm. But with this thing, I was very aware, like, I don't want to run out of space because if we run out of space on the SSD. It's going to take 40 minutes to download it. Or actually, I think it took two hours on the, on the Thunderbolt dock. Wow at the end of the day so uh, it was a big drive though too yeah yeah it was like a 400 gig drive so it was a little bit more like a film shoot in a way when we finished something i would i would say cut we're in the digital like in the all digital workflow even shooting on like a, a an epic i might have kept rolling because memory is abstract art at this point you can mm. just plug more in i knew that we had a finite amount of these cards with us so that that was kind of cool it was sort of a horror vibe sort of low light how did yeah. you feel about the low light performance of that camera i think it actually worked really well the the weird thing about it though is that it's ideally rated at 400 asa and i if i had a christmas wish from black magic it would be to get us the same kind of isos that we're used to from from dslrs or frankly from any other digital cameras you know 400 is sort of like dialing back the clock to uh you know shooting on an hvx 200 10 years ago oh, or 35 or millimeter ago. film <laughs> so, <laughs> it wasn't like a deal killer but i will say that obviously it just meant that we needed to light everything a little more than if we'd had something that was a native 800 ASA or a native 1200 ASA. Mm. Um, and an interesting thing, and you've already warned me that I'm going to get made fun of for this, <laughs> but I promise you that this happened. The DP, the camera assistant, and myself all looked at it, and it looked on the day like we were having rolling shutter. And I was like, this is a global shutter camera. What the hell? We were all like, the fuck are you talking about? This isn't this isn't global shutter. This is rolling shutter just like you would see on a Canon 7D. And we even recorded a little bit and played it back, and there it was. And then when I got the footage home, I looked at that exact clip that, you know, where we're panning back and forth very quickly just in seeing Jell-O cam, no Jell-O cam to be seen. 
I, I don't know to this day if that was an artifact of the way the footage was being written to the drive, the way the drive was delivering it to the monitor, the fact that we had two monitors on the camera, mm-hmm. the, the specific brands of the monitors, the cables running to the monitors, who the hell knows what caused it. But I'm sure that, that can't be a unique experience. Somebody else out there has seen something that looks like rolling shutter on the Blackmagic camera and then got into the edit bay and been like, nope, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. I I haven't seen what you've seen. I haven't seen the clip that you're that you're talking about, but uh, I can tell you that uh, a global shutter is not going to not going to suddenly it ever show you some rolling shutter artifacts. It's a it's I believe a, you. It's an either or sort of thing. So uh, and if it was just me being a stupid idiot like I am and saying like I think I'll still roll rolling shutter, like I can believe that I would see something that wasn't there. But I promise you that three professionals looked at the footage and saw the same thing. And then again, in the edit bay, not there at all. What I think is most interesting is that people have become so accustomed to seeing these artifacts or maybe so PO'd about seeing these artifacts that now I think people out there are getting hypersensitive to it too. They, they're like, oh, I, I know that when I'm watching television and I see rolling shutter, I immediately, some little thing in the back of my head goes, eh, rolling shutter. And like, eh. So you're saying that I'm having like phantom limb syndrome with rolling shutter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know how to respond with that but yes that's exactly what i'm saying i'm saying that uh somehow in your mind you are implanting like the the rolling shutter jello right on top of your perfectly fine image and maybe there was some other you know light from venus or something striking it, it, the atmosphere and if, if there was then it was it, it was phantom limb syndrome mixed with mass hysteria because three of us saw it everybody who looked at the image saw it and it was like obviously there and george was commenting on all night and then again i get in the who saw it first was it you no it was george george right. brought me over he's like hey check this out and i'm looking at it and i know what rolling shutter looks well, like well you know maybe george you know implanted like the thought and then the rest of you had like stockholm syndrome you were all like oh yeah yeah rolling shutter we so all just stockholm like- syndrome phantom limb syndrome <laughs> And mass hysteria. <laughs> yes, it's, it's definitely what was happening. We'll okay, well, uh, uh, anything else you want to add about your black magic experience? I mean, there? honestly, like, I think the footage looks beautiful. I had a seamless experience editing it in, mm-hmm. in Adobe Premiere. It's not a camera that I'm probably going to rush out and buy, or at least I will wait until after NAB to even consider rushing out and buying any camera. Mm-hmm. Because black magic, if they've shown us one thing, it's that as soon as NAB rolls around, they're going to show us something that we want even more than the last thing that they gave us. Yeah, well, yeah, and, that, and that's, a, that's a really great lead-in because my obsession of this week and actually for the last couple weeks now because i'm trying to get ready for it is nab and nab is the national association of broadcasters trade event in las vegas it runs from april 7th through april 10th there's a few days ahead for those who are really hardcore want to learn something there's some seminars and some things like that but Mm. nab is sort of like those are the people who spend like like 1100 on nab badges and i want to know who they are you know, if you spent the money, you get to meet a bunch of other ones. But, you know, if you walk around the the convention center, I'm sure you'll see some people that will say like, you know, all access or you know, yeah. digital cinema summit. They like to have these various uh, events. And I'll give a plug for Ryan Avery, who is uh, going to be out there. Yeah, I know he's speaking at one of these events. He's a really, really smart guy talking about cameras, camera accessories, and he's in not the most desirable time slot. I want to say it's like six or seven o'clock on Saturday night. And of course, you know, the time probably people are just about done with their whole like you know, yeah. NAB experience. But uh, if you are one of those people, if you do have one of those badges and you are looking for someone good to, uh, 
you know, to, to hear talk about all kinds of cool camera stuff. Ryan Avery is your guy. Anyway, uh, NAB is a massive trade show. It is the biggest trade show of its type in the world, especially for motion picture, for broadcast, for camera equipment. The central hall is kind of your place. That is where most every manufacturer is is located who deals in this stuff. Aerie is there. Panasonic is there. Sony is there. I know that there's going to be some new cameras that are going to be uh, debuted or shown there. Uh, I've heard rumors about some other stuff, so we'll have to kind of wait and see. Uh, rumors from companies that don't traditionally make cameras possibly getting into uh, the, the, the camera game. Uh, like for, Blackmagic two years ago? Yeah, kind of like that. So I've, I've heard some some rumblings. And it'll be interesting. I, I look uh, forward to the new Adobe camera. That's right. You heard it here first. The Adobe camera. <laughs> uh, but part of your Creative Cloud subscription that, is that right. you, you get a camera. It's it's fifty dollars a month, and the camera just sort of like arrives on your doorstep, yeah. and you actually it's the camera that's built into your laptop. You just point it at where no. It's that's a, a most convenient way to make a movie I can ever think of. <laughs> it's not Adobe. I don't know anything about Adobe. I have no <laughs> idea what they're what they're doing. If they are coming out with a camera, you did not hear it from me because uh, I, I, you heard it from me. The Adobe <laughs> camera coming out. <laughs> um. Uh, Panasonic is uh, expected to have a Vericam there, which I think is really interesting because, you know, Vericam, of course, uh, amazing camera in the early days of high definition and uh, a lot of fans still to this day. And supposedly there'll be something new. They're definitely going to have GH4s, which I've gotten to play with uh, a little bit now. I had a GH4. I, I want Panasonic to make a comeback, man. I mean, like I used to be all about Panasonic. Like when when we made conversations in 2003, that was on the uh, SDX 900. And uh, that, I think, to this day, is the best standard def camera that was ever made. And then I feel like they revolutionized DV, even after, like, Sony had kind of gotten its, its toehold in with DV. Then they came out with the DVX100, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they, they just kept innovating the HVX200. They, they had a lot of cameras that were, like, the go-to indie, low-budget filmmakers' cameras, and they, they gave great look. The Vericam was, I, I always thought, was very competitive with Sony, even mm-hmm. though Sony had a higher resolution. They had a better color space, and I just always felt like their skin tones looked better. And they also did great things with frame rates. They did all kinds of fun yeah. stuff. You know, uh, Panasonic's always been a really strong player in this space. But I feel like uh, the last few years, the last two years when I've gone to NAB, it's been like a ghost town over at Panasonic. It's like they were focused more on like monitors and stuff. I know the people over there, and I think that they do great work. And I've been wanting to see Panasonic just like knock down the door and, and give us something that just blew our minds, like the DVX100 or the SDX900 did, or the HVX200. You could make arguments that the GH4 may do that. And a lot of people haven't gotten to play with it yet. I've been very lucky to be able to play with it a little bit. I'm really impressed by that camera. I think it's going to be really amazing. I actually think Micro Four Thirds mount is a, is, a, is a decent mount and it's a decent sensor size. You can do a lot of cool stuff with it. The 1080p frame rates are you know, off the chart and 96 frames per second, which is amazing when you're talking about cameras that are so inexpensive. And anyway, NEB is going to be again, a gargantuan event of competition between different manufacturers trying to, you can say it. It's a clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck of awesomeness. That's right. It's a clusterfuck of technology, all kind of competing for eyeballs and attention. And uh, there'll be plenty of bloggers and vloggers and people and things who are out there with cameras uh, saying, Oh, this is, this is great. Take a look at this 
this little piece of technology. And there'll also be guys who are like component salesmen who are walking around and looking yeah. for the latest resistor. And, you know, there'll be people in the satellite industry who are there talking about know. like, you know, I always turn it. I always turn a corner at NAB and I'm like, where the hell am I? And what is any of this stuff? Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's like I'm, I'm in like the professional <laughs> broadcast van or, or like radio like, you know, oh, yeah, if I wanted to outfit my radio tower, this is where I would buy the stuff. Yes. Microwave uh, transmission. There's all kinds yeah. of stuff that gets, gets lumped in there. But the area that is the greatest concentration of production, people and stuff seems to be Central Hall, maybe halfway back. That's kind of where it starts. Well, is, isn't South Hall where Post is? South Hall is where Post is. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Avid is back this year. I don't know if Apple is back this year, but Apple a- Avid was Avid- there last year. Oh, really? A- a- Avid was upstairs in like a weird corner last year. But I remember I actually went there and I got a pen that had avid written on it. It was a really nice pen. And I was like, finally, avid has given me something I will actually use. (laughs) Well, uh, Kodak was also there last year. Kodak was there. Kodak was there. And I remember walking by their booth and not seeing any people in it, which I felt was strange, strangely appropriate and and kind of sad. Not, not like no, no patrons in it. They had no employees working there. And I was like during the show hours. So I was like, wow, there's like all these people here, but none of them work for Kodak, which Apple uh, hasn't been there in years. And Apple kind of pulled out of going to other people's trade shows. But I feel like Apple crashed like the uh, Los Angeles Final Cut Pro users group super meet. I want to say three years ago when they announced Final Cut Pro 10. And that was like the first time that they'd even showed up at NAB. And the first time I ever went to NAB was specifically to see an Apple keynote when they were announcing the first version of Motion. Oh, I thought you were going to say when they were announcing the first version of Keynote. So The first... <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have a, pro, a piece of software called Keynote? Oh, they do, yes, that? yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they pulled out. But one of the things that I, thought, that I always think is interesting is, I don't know if this is the same this year, but for the last couple of years, where Apple used to be, is where Adobe is now. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, it's from my heart to the NAB show floor, like where I used to think Apple was like the way that I would edit and do all my post through, you know, Final Cut Pro and soundtrack and motion. Like I've sublimated all of my feelings and am now working almost exclusively with Adobe when I'm editing. So uh, what uh, do you have any predictions for NAB? Wow. Predictions. Um I predict there's going to be a lot of walking. There's going to be some blisters. There's going to be some uh, you know, people very. Do you have any predictions beyond your feet? Uh, uh, no, no, no predictions. No, no predictions. <laughs> uh, Is Canon going to blow our minds? Is Nikon going to finally rise to the challenge? Is Blackmagic going to give us a 9K camera? What? What? Okay. What are your predictions? Well. I'll be sworn to secrecy, but I'll get to find out about Blackmagic just before the show opens. Uh, the night before, they do a thing for all the dealers where they announce the products. It's where they announced the the 4K last year, and it was not supposed to be leaked, but someone leaked it into Twitter, and before you knew it, boom, an hour later, everyone knew about the, the 4K and the pocket camera. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about Canon or Sony or anything else. I have some predictions. I think Sony might show a 4K DSLR of some sort. Uh, they've teased that in years past. I think that might get another tease. However, I think if it was really real and really kind of like ready, uh, we'd probably have seen it by now or heard something. I think that they would have, they would have been, they'd be promoting it. They'd be promoting it in the, in the run up. But yeah. since we haven't seen anything, I'm guessing they don't have it just yet. Uh, I don't think Nikon's going to blow our minds. I hate to, to say it to Nikon cause I really do love their glass and I really do think they make great, great still camera bodies. I'm a Nikon owner and shooter for, and for, for many years, but Nikon can't make the jump to motion very well. I mean, I know they've hired Giannis Kaminsky and they've, you know, done some efforts to appeal to people about their, 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 
their motion side, their cinematography side, but really Nikon, uh, they have a long way to go. They need a lot of help and, uh, I don't know where they're getting it from right now. So, Mm. but, uh, at least that, that, that's how I feel. That's my, my opinion. Make great products, but yeah, on the motion side, they still need. Is Canon going to finally give, give DSLR users, uh, something that's like a follow up to like a worthy successor to, to the first wave of the DSLR revolution? I think they feel like they've done that already with the one DC. Now the one DC is in a very expensive camera and it does. I think it's nice that they think that. Yes. I think it's nice that they think that as well, but I'm just postulating here. I have no idea what they really feel about it, but one DC seems to be what they're pushing people towards who want a high resolution, you know, highly, uh, you know, competent 4k DSLR or 4k SLR. If you want to, well, I think that. I think I think it would be interesting if they just dropped the price of that precipitously, so it became an affordable thing that people would actually buy and use. Yeah, that that would make a lot of sense. If it was somewhere in the price of like the One DX, that might make it really interesting for some people. But as it is right now, it's it's very pricey, and it makes a good image. And I've I talked to some people who were involved in a really really big camera test for a really really big movie where they test. Oh, all these cameras, tons of cameras, all you know the red cameras, all the Sony cameras, and the look and color that the producers and the cinematographer came back with is the one they said they liked the best was the one DC, which I think is really interesting because I personally don't have that feeling for the camera. It's not my favorite sort of like look out the box. doesn't mean you can't make some good looks with it, but, no. uh, but I mean the, the lesson that we've all learned is you can make almost anything look pretty damn great nowadays. If you know, using modern grading stuff, I, I, I think if I had a Christmas wish from Canon, it would be absorb magic lantern and just, you know, use their firmware upgrade to give people better outputs from the cameras that they already own. I know that that runs counter to everybody's uh, intuition, but like Magic Lantern, if it was integrated into the actual operating system of the camera and it was a more intuitive uh, system, you could do so much more even if you have a 5D Mark II, you know, and the 5D Mark III and every 70, all of those cameras could be improved. I don't know how much Magic Lantern is actually doing. I think those things are all kind of built into the camera already and that Magic Lantern is just unlocking them and giving you... Um, ways to access them. I believe. Thank that, you. I believe. Super easy. The, what, then why doesn't Canon just give you that? Why? Why make us go through this song and dance? They're a big multi-billion-dollar corporation who has to have incremental upgrades of their products to make a profit and to sell their customers yeah. new stuff over and over again. It's a you know it's a business model that's not exactly my favorite, but uh, I I can understand why they do it. I can understand like you know this is this is how they're planning on making money. So well, it'll be it's it's always an interesting show to go to NAB and see uh, all all the cool stuff. I'm excited, even though again we're not a post podcast. I'm always excited to see what Adobe's going to come out with next year. It's going to be every year. It's some mind boggling new stuff. Uh, I will assure you that Canon's going to spend some money. I mean, this is the company that's hired, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard to uh, be their their pitch people. So they're going to have a huge booth. They're probably going to do something. Probably have a new reel of footage. But uh, they've they've usually been pretty slow about uh, introducing new cameras. So I don't know if we'll see anything new from them. I say release the C three hundred, fix the ergonomics, and sell it for three thousand dollars, and you'd be in shape. <laughs> uh, I'm going to add that to my list of things that won't happen, but. Yeah. Uh, Aries going to be there, of course. They're going to have working Amiras. Uh, that's a camera. 4K Alexa. Say it. 4K Alexa. I don't think we're going to see a 4K Alexa. I oh, don't. Oh, man. I don't. They're losing business. You can get 3K. You can get, you know, pretty darn close. 4K on board. No external boxes. Give us a 4K Alexa. Well, I have seen some, I have seen some beautiful looking movies shot with that. And I don't think that, you know, we should save it for another episode, but we should actually do a episode of a podcast where we talk about 
what the hell is 4K, why is it or is it not important, and really the most limiting factor of all, our eyes. And I don't know anyone who's ever complained about the look out of the Alexa. It's beautiful. I just think oh, yeah. they need to they need to up the game to 4K. All I, I got I got one word for you, Skyfall. Amazing. Beautiful film. Absolutely amazing. Roger I have another Deacons. one, Rush. Rush, that's right. Rush is another spectacularly good-looking movie. So. Yep. So yeah, Rush, Rush, beautiful film shot on the Alexa. Yeah. And, by and, Anthony Dodd Mantle. It just goes to title. show. <laughs> it just goes to show, though. You know, it's mostly about the talent behind the camera, not the number of pixels. It's definitely about the talent, and I think that talent is something that anyone out there can develop over time in this industry, or at least should be able to develop. And uh, NAB is kind of a, a good place for all the technophiles to go and, you know, poke around and see some stuff and, uh, you know, have, all fun right. have fun in Vegas. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Ilya, where can people find you online? Okay. You can find me at hotrodcameras.com or on Twitter at hotrodcameras. Sweet. You can find everything about me at uh, benrockonline.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Neptune Salad. If people wanted to email us a suggestion or a question or a comment or any kind of feedback, because we we love feedback, where can they reach us? They can reach us at cinematographypodcast.com and the email address is email at cinematographypodcast.com. I also wanted to mention that all of our music is done by Kays Alatrachi. You can find everything about Kays at musicbykays.com. Please hire Kays and pay him lots of money. He is deserving. All right. So that's it for episode three of the Cinematography Podcast. We'll be back really soon with uh, episode four. We'll do a little wrap up of NAB and see if any of these predictions uh, were were right or not. 9K Alexa. 9K Alexa is not happening. All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) We'll see you at the next episode. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.